This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. You have been hearing, I'm sure, over the last day or two, a revival of sorts of a discussion that began some months ago. We go back, I don't know what it is, two, three, four, five months now. Michael Landlauer, the owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs, was talking about wanting, it's time for a new arena. First Ontario Centre is getting old. It's 32 years old, I think now. Not really the right size for the kind of hockey we have here right now. He would like to throw his money in. He has offered to match whatever the city will put in. And back then, when this whole discussion happened, quietly off in the distance, as a lot of people were talking about this arena, there were some people who said, well, hey, what about up on the mountain? What about around Lime Ridge Mall? Well, that was sort of mentioned and then forgotten about. Kind of just blew away with the rest of the discussion. In the last few days, as Mayor Fred Eisenberger came forward with a motion at City Council saying, you know what we should do? Malls are struggling. We should allow for rezoning or for building developers to put up housing and stuff there. That was an interesting idea. Two days ago, Mayor Eisenberger was on this show and I asked him, I said, are you just talking housing or could it be mixed use? Could there be some commercial as well built there? Like, for example, an arena that was mentioned once upon a time, as I said, by Councillor Donna Skelly. Well, thought it was time to bring back said Councillor Donna Skelly to discuss this again, since it was her suggestion right off the bat, and she probably has some thoughts on this. Councillor, thanks for doing this today. Anytime, hang you, you, you left me hanging. What did Fred say? Well, a couple days ago, he, and then today again with Bill Kelly, he seemed quite open to the concept oh, that maybe this would be interesting. an interesting idea, which I, I must admit, I was a little surprised to hear. Interesting. Well, it was actually revived, I guess, by uh, your your radio station when they, um, following on the heels of his motion, uh, transforming dead space on malls into mixed-use um, buildings such as residential, condominium rental, uh, some of them senior residences, is not a new concept. It's being done uh, right across North America. And I think it's a fabulous way of addressing the change in retail space today. Retail outlets are taking a huge hit because of e-commerce. And Lime Ridge has, a, for example, a very large vacant space right now with Sears. That's not unusual. All of the Sears buildings, of course, are vacant right across the country. We saw buildings uh, remain vacant for, for quite a long time after Target left. And, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to fill space of that size. So really out of necessity, they've been looking at other options and residential is, is a really good fit, especially with, especially with an aging population. Think about the appeal of living, working and being entertained right in your own backyard, literally. I think it's a, it's an interesting concept. And of course, it lends itself to, opportunities beyond residential. Well, and that was the, the, the discussion we had, is if you were going to build a condo, for example, on Lime Ridge property, could you, f- and originally my thought was, could you see having, let's say, the main floor, the main couple of floors with coffee shops or restaurants or whatever else, and then I mentioned your name and I said, and Councillor Skelly had mentioned an arena there once upon a time. What about that? And the answer was, as again, as followed up with Bill Kelly today, interesting idea, something that would definitely be worth looking into. Um, the shock to me, I guess, Councillor, is that I think for a lot of people, there's just been an assumption that if there was going to be a new arena in town, that everybody would be anticipating it would be in the downtown. Well, um, I was adamant that when we talked about discussing future opportunities for the city-owned space in the downtown core, such as Cops Coliseum, the Convention Center, actually the Art Gallery, and all of the spaces the city owns that we include in that future discussion options for uh, arenas beyond the downtown core because I'm not so sure it is the only place for a venue of that nature. I think we should look at other opportunities. I'm not saying that it is necessarily better than the downtown, but we shouldn't take it off the table. If somebody is willing to come to the table with money, if the private sector is interested in coming in and saying, look, I have dollars, but I don't want it downtown, I'd like it here, and we look at those opportunities, 
staff have reminded me that Lime Ridge really is, um, has an opportunity to be the so-called downtown for the mountain. It's, it's on a major uh, vehicle route and bus route. It has enough parking. It lends itself to being a destination for people within, you know, around the mountain, Denver, Glenbrook, uh, et cetera. And so I think that we shouldn't just automatically assume that if we are going to build an arena, probably a much smaller arena than we have today, it necessarily has to be in the downtown core. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Councillor Donna Scally, Ward 7 Councillor Donna Scally, about the idea of an arena up on the mountain. As I say, I think for most people it's just been an assumption that if there was ever going to be a new arena, and not everyone has even wrapped their heads around that yet, that it would be downtown. But Donna, just before the break, you raised something really interesting, I thought, and that is you talked about Lime Ridge or that area potentially being the downtown of the mountain. We do have a unique city geographically that it is really split so that you do have the downtown, but you do have a lot of people who aren't in the downtown that maybe this would be an inter- a, a, a thing that would work for them. I do, and when you think about hockey, um, young families and uh, the burbs and that, that's probably where you would see the most interest in, in the sport itself and in, in um, attending a game or playing a game. Thus, the reason why I'm suggesting that we should at least look at the potential and the advantages of locating, if we choose to go down that that path, a new arena um, outside of the downtown core. When we think about what could happen with the space, the city-owned space, such as uh, the space that COPS, or I should say First Ontario Centre, is acquiring right now, and um, the convention centre, et cetera, I'm sure there is a, a huge potential to develop that in an exciting way, it may not necessarily mean that we need an arena there. And if that's the case, and if their developers come forward with other options, other ideas that will help vitalize, revitalize the downtown core, contribute to this renaissance, contribute to the, the growth that we're seeing, then I think we should, and it doesn't include an arena, then I think we should look at the possibility of locating an arena around Lime Ridge, not necessarily Lime Ridge. And I don't want to... Um, uh, mislead uh, your your listeners to I don't want to suggest that I'm speaking on behalf of Lime Ridge or um, Mr. Ann Lauer I certainly don't want to leave that impression I'm simply suggesting that if someone is coming to the table with money we have to certainly sit down and listen to why they would necessarily want to locate um, an arena build an arena outside of the downtown curious when so many people have this assumption that any discussion of an arena would be downtown why is that do you think because it's there now, and because most big venues are located in an area uh, such as the downtown court, it can work. It doesn't necessarily um, mean it isn't the right location. But I think that you were at, at the Lansdowne, or have you been to the new um, football stadium in, in Ottawa? I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible what they've done with it. They have residences. They have, uh, I think it's a, a condo unit and retail and commercial complex. It's an interesting venue but it goes beyond that of just a football stadium and i think we need we could consider that with a um with a, an arena as well perhaps there's a you know it's built within a, a complex that includes commercial retail and perhaps residential as well and that could be the arena uh, that could be the mountain we have the space uh, Does- and that may leave the downtown with something that is uh, even more um appealing to people who live and work and and want to do business in the core does Cadillac Fairview own the land Lime Ridge sits on, or is it leased from the city? Do you know? I believe they own it. Okay, so the, potentially then, if something was going to be done on that property, the city's only involvement, if it was going to be private sector money, would be for zoning. Correct, but I think that there are there may be other opportunities. There's this assumption that it's just the Lime Ridge. What about other opportunities? There may be other parcels of land that are as appealing uh, perhaps land that the city owns or land that uh, other developers own so or private sector um, um, companies own. So I think that we shouldn't just be so... Uh, we have to be careful not to just think about Lime Ridge. There may be other options as well on the mountain. And, 
okay, it, we know that these are expensive propositions, and so we are now throwing out a pie in the sky idea here. But if this was no, if this was entirely private money, and I don't even know if that thing is feasible, could you imagine anybody from the city would balk at this or get in the way if this was an entirely private sector opportunity? <laughs> I would hope not. Okay, I mean, Leave I, I it, it makes no, Leave it makes. It I would hope not because it, it would be incredible. If there was a, a, an initiative that really didn't cost taxpayers money, I think we, we would be silly not to do everything possible. Okay, so let's go the next step then. Let's mm-hmm. go the next step. What if it was not public money, but it was public in kind, as you describe, land or tax yeah. breaks? or I think that's, a, that's something we need to look at. I really do. I think we should explore those options. And I think, um, I think something that could have this kind of uh, an impact on our city shouldn't be considered in isolation and in secrecy. I think that we need to engage people and engage residents uh, right across the city, stakeholders, and, and let them know that we are open to all options, that we would welcome their proposals. And certainly, if they're coming to the table with money, I think we would be um, foolish not to sit down and, and discuss, exhaust all possibilities before we would ever close the door on something like that. Okay, and so third option, we've talked about if it was entirely mm-hmm. private money, we've talked about if it was in kind of land or something. What would be the response, do you think, from your city council f- folks if it was a split? Do you think there's any appetite right now to spend no. public money on something like no, this? No, I don't think there is any appetite to spend any money, any tax dollars uh, on a new arena. I think that... Uh, you share that view? I do. I think at this point we need to look at other ways of, of having something like this um, come to fruition, and I think that there are many other options available. I don't think we've actually even uh, begun to have any sort of a real discussion, and we should be able to, we should start that. We should start looking at options. If there are interested parties, let's, let's just have discussions. Let's be open and honest with nothing to hide and everything to gain. And if we go in with our eyes uh, wide open and and make sure that um, taxpayers realize we aren't in this to spend money or waste money, but we just simply want to see what the options are. I think that they would welcome these discussions, and I think we should move forward with these discussions. Councillor Donna Skelly, always appreciate your time. Thank you. Anytime. That is, uh, it is, look, I, I think that's really interesting, and I think that it's a lot of people should be listening to what was just said there. What Councillor Skelly said at the end was, I don't think she or anyone else is interested in tax dollars, but if there is an opportunity for something with private money or private money and in kind from the city that's not cash out of the city's pocket, out of the taxpayer's pocket, why would we not listen to that? Why would we not listen to that? I don't know if that's the case. I don't know if that's going to happen, but why would we not listen to that? You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Last night, if you were with us last night, and I hope you were, we were chatting about a poll that was done in the States that suggested a large number, a, to me, shocking number of millennials knew very little about World War II, knew very little about the Holocaust. The striking number to me out of the whole thing was the 22% in this poll, the 22% of American millennials who had never even heard of the Holocaust. That is stunning. That is amazing to me. Not in a good way. It makes me wonder what is going on in our schools, and when I say our schools, I mean in schools, that this gap, this knowledge gap can exist. Now, to reiterate, this was an American study. This wasn't a Canadian study. Things may be very, very different in Canada for all we know. But what do we teach in history now? Is there reason to believe that things would be vastly different in Canada? And how do we teach it? Jan Haskings Winner is the past president of the Ontario History and Social Science Teachers Association. She is a teacher herself. She has authored textbooks. Uh, she is someone who knows this area well, teaching history, not necessarily a lack of knowledge of the Holocaust. I'm sure she knows all about World War II, uh, but she joins me now. Jan, thanks for doing this today. Thanks so much for having me. When you, you saw this story, I, I know that uh, you had read this. You, were you surprised when you saw the numbers and you realized that a generation seems to be struggling so badly knowing history? Um, I mean, given that it's an American study, and I don't want to make too much judgment about American process and so on, right? I mean, I would, I would doubt you would find something similar to that in Canada, and certainly not in Ontario. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, because we, the grade 10 
um, history um, is a compulsory course in Ontario. And so they must learn, and part of the expectations is they learn about Canada's contribution in World War I and World War II, and the course goes from 1914 until the present. And included in that is, of course, discussion about the Holocaust um, and other kinds of sort of post-war, Korean War, and Cold War, and other kinds of military conflicts at the same time. Okay, so... Here and that's 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 reassuring to know at least to you know right off the top because that's it seems like a rather important thing that we should be aware of. But this is this is one element and and what I found really interesting after I got off the phone with uh, with the gentleman last night from the Hamilton Jewish Federation is that teaching history once upon a time seems anyway not as a teacher but the what we were teaching in history seemed pretty easy because by and large we accepted the history, what was in the textbooks, it was kind of the thing we all agreed with. And now we disagree on an awful lot of it. Statues are being torn down because suddenly heroes are being perceived or reworked as villains and villains are now maybe being reconsidered and they're not so villainous and buildings are being renamed. We have a lot less consensus now. How do we teach history when we don't even agree on what the history is? I think it's really because history is not so much about content, but about thinking and critical thinking. So the, the change, the curriculum in Ontario is really about looking at re- the primary sources and having students navigate those sources. And history is complicated. It's messy. It's not supposed to be, you know, as, as I have done before, you know, a series of, un, you know, one damn thing after another. It's, it's really about <laughs> understanding our past. So I have a grade 12 history course, history, and I just was teaching this, this actual week, this topic about the Holocaust. And they looked at primary sources. They looked at Eichmann. They looked at, at Hitler, and they looked at a Holocaust survivor to get a sense of read three different sources about the event and then try to understand what does that mean and try to make sense of how could this happen and what does that mean for us today in the 21st century. And that is, uh, I mean, that clearly, as you say, it adds primary sources, but what do you do when we go then back further? Because there are still survivors, there are still eyewitnesses to this, and there are still people who are, have recently, and recently within the past 50 years, written books who were there. But what happens when you're talking about history now that may be 200 or 400 or 600 years old? Again, it's about looking for the sources, right? I mean, and, and I mean, I, when I went to high school, because I'm a little older than, than you might think, um, women were not included in history textbooks. And you know, sometimes it might be a little box on the page, but women's history never mattered, which is like, I, like as a feminist, I kind of I find that shocking, right? And, and more recently, indigenous history was not included. We had no sense of, I never learned about residential schools when I was in university, let alone high school. But now we're looking and looking at our curriculum and being more critical so that the students can not only understand what happened, look at sources to understand, because nothing is in isolation. Everything sort of has a beginning and it, does, like, it doesn't just pop up out of nowhere, right? Like there's, there's long-term you know, currents and causes <clears throat> that lead to what is going on today, no matter how, how, back, how far back you go. I mean, if you look at what happened, you know, in... Um, Charlotteville in the United States, or even in, in Halifax in, in, um, in Nova Scotia, in terms of, you know, turning over, you know, the monuments. But it's not about just, I mean, in Canada, I hope we are looking at it critically and making a thoughtful discussion. And I mean, they asked some students about what happened and what should happen in Halifax. And they said, instead of tearing it down, they should actually decide who else should be there and then discuss all the different perspectives, not just one perspective. Well, and that's that's one of the interesting things here, because it has been black and white for a long time. And I, I, I mean, you know, one side or the other. It's very gray now. History, I think, for students today, much more than when we were coming through or you or many of the listeners, it's much more gray and much more nuanced now. Correct. But I mean, life is much more gray and nuanced, right? So we want to help kids develop the skills that will help them then navigate, you know, being adults, you know, making political choices. You know, there's elections coming up, making um, life choices, economic choices. All those things require thinking and, you know, looking at a, a variety of sources before you make your decision. And there are a lot of different voices and being able to assess the credibility of sources, you know, with all the discussion today about, you know, fake news. I mean, it's not a new, uh, Mr. Trump south of the border is not the first to use fake news. Um, but helping kids understand um, where the source is to assess the credibility of the source and then make an informed decision um, 
about the implications of whatever event we're talking about, right? So, I mean, I actually, I'm very um, encouraged about the youth today. Um, certainly my students are very engaged, very thoughtful. I mean, and when I mentioned that I was going to be on the radio tonight and, and the, the cause of it, my, the look on my grade 12 students was one of sheer horror that this could even be a question. Like, they just could not even imagine that this could be a true statement anywhere in the world. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Jan Haskins Winner, past president of the Ontario History and Social Science Teachers Association, about teaching history these days. This is a leaping off point from last night about this poll that so many American millennials apparently knew nothing or very little or too little about World War II, about the Holocaust, about what happened there. And Jen, picking up what you said, and I'm glad right before the break you said your students were shocked by this. That's encouraging to me. But if we are now struggling with our history, and I think it's fair to say we do that, to determine sometimes goodness and badness. You know, I say these statues are coming down. It's tough to know who's the good guy and the bad guy. Um, If it's tough to necessarily know who are the heroes and who are the villains, because that changes does it not become easier for some teachers just to skip it all together and move on to the easier parts, and that's how we end up with a poll like this? It can happen. I, I'm not going to disagree with you that that happens. I mean, in fact, the curriculum, Ontario curriculum, is being changed for following September to more specifically include Indigenous perspectives in our curriculum, which before it was optional, and teachers could do exactly that. Say, well, I, don't want, I don't know enough about that. I'm afraid I want to say the wrong thing, so say nothing. So that's been sort of the past, I would argue. And now with this revision, the curriculum... Oops, I'm in a hospital. That's okay. Um, the curriculum will have a, um, um, a requirement that teachers teach this. And the Ministry of Education is making... Is making um, okay, they stopped. Is making... Is making... Um, providing resources and training to help teachers so that they can actually navigate those complicated histories. And the Indigenous communities themselves are providing lots of those resources that will help teachers and then students, and I would suggest for the rest of, you know, for future, you know, our Canada going forward, we can navigate a better, I mean, I don't think this is, this is not an immediate solution. I think this is a long-term solution because history is not really just a series of events. I mean, it has been taught that way, memorize and regurgitate, move on. But I, the way where um, curriculum is intended to be taught in, in history in Ontario, and actually I would argue across Canada, that we're all looking to find ways to navigate those difficult histories. Nobody cares, you know, um, what battle was on what day. It doesn't matter. What they do matter, is, what does matter is you know, those more complicated questions. And that's actually the advantage of that is it engages kids in mm. history. So they want to know more. I mean, I have a student who's, who's engaged in in history, and he's really a math science kid, but he's going way beyond what the curriculum is to do some investigation on the connection of the Spanish flu to my community, because we had a, a presentation on that, and he's just fascinated by that. So kids will be engaged in these things if they can find connections and ask questions and not be asked to memorize and regurgitate, but to think critically and then use the evidence to make an informed, thoughtful response. At, do our teachers today in history, do they, are they supposed to assign qualities of good or bad to actions or to behaviors in history? Are the, are the teachers now supposed to be guiding, I guess, past morality? Because that's happened in the past, too. We've said so-and-so was evil, so-and-so was a hero. Do we do that anymore? There is some of that. I mean, and, but, and there's an element of, I mean, there's you know, general consensus on, say, Hitler, right? I mean, I don't think there's too much negotiation no. on that one, right? But then you look at, say, Louis Riel, who has historically been taught as a traitor, but now is being re-looked at in terms of a completely different perspective. And then that's when you look at, have kids look at the sources and look at the different perspectives, then they can make an informed choice, an informed response to the question about, you know, the Real Rebellion. And, you know, it doesn't matter what the topic is. I mean, there's, you know, there's, we have several courses. I mean, history is taught in Ontario from in grades 7, 8, 10, 11, and 12. So they have lots of opportunities to take lots of courses. 7, 8, and 10 is Canadian history. And then in senior courses, they have a lot more choices um, in terms of other countries and other parts of the world. So to complicate things, and we only have a minute, so this is a way too complicated topic for a minute, I grant you, but we'll do our best. Let's use Louis Riel just for a second. 
if a student now has to look at this, look at the various parts of the story and make a determination and learn the history, what if a student comes to a conclusion in after doing their study that doesn't jibe with what the teacher might say? Is that allowed, permitted, that you have looked through the evidence and come to a conclusion? Of course it is. <clears throat> I asked my students, do we, was Canada a just society? The jumping off point of Trudeau, you know, when he got elected, that he wants to make Canada more just society. And I asked students, do we, are we a just society today? There's no correct answer, right? It's only how you find evidence to support your answer that makes it. I mean, you can have a, you can have a non-answer, but that doesn't mean it, but it's not what you say to answer the question. It's how you answer the question. Because good question, you know, like the question, who started World War I, has more than one answer. So you're not looking for memorize and regurgitate. You're looking for think critically, use evidence to support it, and then come to a conclusion. Jan Haskins winner, uh, the past president of the Ontario History and Social Science Teachers Association. I sincerely appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this. You're welcome. It's a topic passionate. I'm happy to talk anytime about history. <laughs> <laughs> it is, uh, you know, the, the sad part is I remember that Hadrian's Wall was built in 1066. I memorized that. That gets me nowhere apparently today. I can't just memorize my history dates anymore. What chance do I have if I go back to high school? Well, I actually would love to have a debate about some of these things, but... That piece of information, I'm done. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. All right. Where was this song always played? Always. I mean, yeah, at Led Zeppelin concerts, of course. That's not what I'm talking about. Every school dance had Stairway to Heaven, right? Do you remember? Did you ever go to school dances? Now, I don't know if they still have Stairway to Heaven. Probably not. Probably have Drake now to, you know, dance to. But Stairway to Heaven was a standard for, I don't know, 30 years. Which was, of course, very troubling. Because the first part, like that part, yeah, you go ask some girl to dance, or I suppose vice versa, And yeah, you can slow dance to Stairway to Heaven and it's all great. When they speed up, I was never able to figure out what I was supposed to do. Do you just like hold on to her and dance really fast now? And, and, or do you, what do you do? Stairway to Heaven was a complicated dance song, but it was played at every school dance and every prom forever. Well, that's why this is appropriate today because let me bring Ben in here. Ben's on the other side of the glass. If you're new to the show, Ben's the guy that keeps the buttons pressed and the music going and the phone calls answered and all that kind of stuff. He's the one who makes sure we're on the air. Ben is a younger man. Ben is closer to his prom era. Did you go to your prom? Yes, I did. Okay. Do you want to say who you went with? Uh, It was a very confusing thing. I went in with one girl and I kind of came out with another. You went with your mom, didn't you? No, okay. not this time. <laughs> All right. Well, sorry, you went with one and came out with another. Yes. Wow, you are a player. I wish I could say that, but no, not really. Oh. It's, you were confused. It's the one... No. <laughs> you, you popped those quaaludes before the dance and away you went... No, I won't, we won't say that. Ben has never taken any illicit substances, ever. No. All right. Well, here's why I'm asking you if you went to your prom. If at your prom... What would have been the, or one of the things that might have caused a teacher to freak out at one of the students and lead to problems? What could a student have done to get themselves in some sort of trouble? Uh, I know one kid that put a stink bomb off in the middle of the dance floor. (laughs) Okay, that'll do it. I mean, that's pretty benign, but okay, that's, you know, it's not the greatest thing ever. Not very mature either. Not very mature. We, one time on a grade seven class trip, we went to Quebec City and bought a box of stink bombs and we laid them under the mattress in the room where the teacher was staying. And when he laid on his bed, they all burst and it was not good. Let me tell you, you burst about 40 of those things, Simon, little glass vials. Oh man, that place. Anyway, I back to prom. So stink bombs, uh, Things that would be legitimately bad, like dropping drugs into someone's drink or whatever else, or taking drugs, something like that, that would get you in trouble for sure. I would expect, now I don't know if this still, because people may be scared to, a teacher may be scared to raise this, but I would think that if a student, male or female, but probably female, showed up wearing something entirely inappropriate. As a guy, it wasn't that big of a problem for me. 
because it's a nice view, but yeah, that happened quite a lot. At okay, my so if that happened, if someone wore something, not a little bit, but if someone wore something really over the top, incredibly inappropriate, a teacher might say something at the risk of being called chauvinist. It would probably have to be a female teacher now, but anyway... I raise all of this because there was a prom in Georgia this week that was rather unique. At least one of the people was rather unique. Not in not inappropriate dress, not drugs, not stink bombs, not inappropriate sexual behavior somewhere in the corner. Um, <laughs> a girl showed up. I just, I can't even believe this story. Uh, her name is Alexandria Clark. She goes to America's Sumter High School. She is an aspiring funeral director. That's what she wants to be for her living. So she didn't take a limo to the prom. She took a hearse to the prom. Of course, why wouldn't you take a hearse to the prom? Didn't tell anyone what she was going to do. Just all of a sudden, this hearse pulls up in front of the prom. That by itself would probably be enough to go, okay, that was different. That was unique. Major point, Alexandria. Well done. We, you want to be a funeral director. Got it. Well done. Except Alexandria was not nearly finished at that point because she didn't open the door and suddenly step out of the hearse to her awaiting date. A bunch of people unloaded a casket from the back of the hearse carried it into the prom room where she now emerged from the casket for her prom. Leading me to think I, I, her future job selection seems like it, there may be something more than just wanting to be a funeral director here. This is getting really straight. She said this was all because she knew some students were going to drink and drive afterwards probably. And she was trying to send a message tied in with her future aspirations. I think if someone ever showed up at my prom in a casket, carried into the dance room, and then popping out going, ah, here, I, I think we've got some questions. This may be the oddest thing anyone's ever done at a, at a prom, I would think. I don't think there's ever been a case like this before. Anyway, if you if you know of one, if you've had someone do something weirder than this at a prom, I'd love to hear from you. Radley at 900chml.com. But showing up in a hearse, in a casket, what does her date even do with that? Her date has got to be sitting there saying, I, I really should have asked somebody else. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, Alexandria, I'm pulling a Ben routine. I'm coming with one woman and I'm leaving with another one. I'm sorry. Was your, is this why? Did your date show up in a, in a casket? No, actually, she did not. All right. Whew. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Get it. Put your arms out front. Lean side to side. They gonna be on you when they see you hit that duggy ride. Ain't nobody getting with my bro from on the side. He go by Bubba and he hit that death like thunder. Okay. I ain't from see? Down, Bubba, how's that one now? It's custom made just for you, sir. Yeah, now you got the beats going. Hey, we even got your name in there. I think we, you know, I don't know what Ben did. I think he went and hired some... Got some special music just for Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Thanks for doing this tonight. That was a pleasure. So uh, all day today, and frankly through the playoffs almost every year, and through the NHL season almost every year, I come to the conclusion that whoever it is at any particular time who is in charge of the NHL's discipline system just doesn't get it. I am convinced that the NHL's system of discipline is the most ineffectual, irregular, inconsistent, ridiculous, non-sensible thing there is in the world of sports. And I, it goes back I to... your usage of the thesaurus. Though. Well, thanks, and those are all off the top of my head. I could come up with more if I look them up. You get Nazem Kadri who gets three game suspension for a bad hit, and you know what? I don't disagree with the suspension that Nazem Kadri got. I don't. I think that the NHL has long been way too lenient. However... The fact that they switched it up and got really serious partway through the season or in the playoffs doesn't make any sense. But now you get the Winnipeg Jets. They got a defenseman who cross-checks viciously Eric Stahl in the throat and in this back of the head, looking right at him, stick way above his head, and he gets only one game. Bubba, I don't understand what they're doing in this league. Well, I think, I think you have to look at it a couple of ways here. Um, 
first of all, the NHL does not compare, you know, one suspension or one action from one player to the next. So we always, and, and I know that's a tendency for us in the media to generally do that. So I think we have to eliminate that from the fans and, and inform the fans of that. So to compare one hit, you know, the Kadri hit to the Morrissey hit or, you know, um, call it, uh, the Nashville Predators uh, player was suspended again today to Hartman. for Yeah, Ryan that. Hartman. Yep. Um, so I think here, here are the two things you have to consider, Scott, is two, Nazem Kadri was a repeat offender, fourth time. So he was going to get extra games on top of what he what he did. I believe he would have gotten two games for his hit because it was, I think, worse than one game. But here's the here's the rub: is that the National Hockey League looks at the playoffs as a different situation in that basically one game is two games because of the importance of the games, the immediacy of the games, and the fact that you know your team could be eliminated in four games in a, in a, in a in a uh, in a playoff series. Now, is that a correct mindset? I'm not sure, but I do believe that's the way the, the league look at it. And I think you're right. I think they look at it's a double. A playoff game is worth twice, and that's what you get. I think that's an established thing. However, again, I think when you say they don't look at one compared to the next, if they don't, they should. Every legal system has precedent and has comparatives and looks at things one compared to the next. And a and I, look, I'm cheering in that playoff series, in case anyone's wondering, I'm cheering for Winnipeg to win. I would like that Canadian team to win. I'm not against Winnipeg. But that was an absolutely vicious, cold-hearted cross-check to a guy's unprotected head and neck area. And this is a league that has said that it is cracking down on this kind of thing, and they barely give, I mean, they give a game. It, it just seems to me to be inconsistent and embarrassing. It really does. I, you know, the optics were absolutely horrible. And I will admit, I was definitely caught off guard. I, again, looking at the, you know, again, the optics of it, looking at what was done, the fact that, you know, and maybe this is a bad thing, too, but I'm at home slowing it down, looking at it, backing up, going forward, and I thought it was an absolutely egregious hit, and it should have never um, never, should have never been happened and punished it in, in that fashion. So I thought two, one game was definitely a little light, but uh, maybe the fact that he's, uh, this is a first-time offender, uh, that they they look into these kind of things. So, uh, um, to be honest, the rule book on some of these headshots, it is so thick and the way they determine this. And you're right. The people, I mean, it's, you're talking about George Peros now, who is now the head of the NHL's Department of Player Safety. George Peros, for those that do not know, uh, in, a, in a changing time of hockey compared to what we saw even 10 years ago, I think it's fair to say that he was a goon. Sure he was. Right, but so, that's but who has of all the guys recently anyway? Not goons, but look at who's been in charge of this department. You had Brian Burke, who was you know a guy who loved to be you know pugilistic and all this stuff. A big yeah. you know he was a tough guy, even if he wasn't a tough guy player, tough guy GM. You had Brendan Shanahan, who was a skilled player but a tough guy. Yeah. Uh, you have Peros, Stephon uh, Quintel, Stephon Quintel. You, when is it time to say, look, if we're going to have someone in charge of this, why does it have to be someone who was who is apparently sympathetic to the accused in these cases, who is someone who understands the thinking of the accused? I think that's unnecessary at this point. Let's have someone in there who has some understanding for the thinking of the victim. Un- it, you know, it's, it's actually unbelievable but that that's your mindset on this. And, and, and I'll tell you why, Scott. It's because when it was announced that George Peros would, that, you know, had this job, it was expected that he that that shed shots, uh, any you know illegal illegal maneuvers done by players would be punished harder because he, because of the fact that he was quote I'll use the word again loosely a goon that he understood the thinking and the mindset of of players that would have premeditated acts and that kind of thing. So the thought was that he would help eliminate these kind of hits from the game because he knew the thinking or the background thinking of these players that would commit such acts. Well, it, clearly not. I mean, it, it, the NHL, what the NHL really needs to do, there's a couple things they need to do. The first one is clearly because it's all over the map. And as you say, there were other suspensions today that were a worse hit than Nazem Kadri's hit. Now, I know he's a repeat offender, but the, anyway... 
The first thing they need to do, I believe, is at the start of next year, sit down with everybody and say, precedent is gone. Here's the new reality, and this is where we start. We're starting at a five-game suspension. Because I don't think that it's working right now to just be able to build on what you've done before. I don't think it works. I don't think anyone is worried about it. I don't think anyone fears the league's discipline system. I think they think it's a joke. Scott, how, how do you do such a thing? The league cannot make that act. Everything that the league does has to be done in accordance with, the, with not only making the decisions, the decisions have to be passed by the Board of Governors, and probably even more difficult is the Players' Union. The NHLPA have to be a part of these decisions. And to say that a penalty for a headshot starts at five games, that's five games of pay that a player is going to lose. And I don't think that anyone in the union is going to go for that. All right, so you bring up that. It's a valid point. It's a great point you bring up, that this has to be done through the Players Association. So my next answer to that one is, if I'm the NHL, if I'm Gary Bettman or I'm involved, I go to the Players Association, to Donald Fear, and I say, as of today, we are out of the discipline business. This is on the Players Association. The guys who are being hit in the head, who are being concussed, who are losing their careers, are paying their union dues to you just as much as the guys who are doing it, you now sort out whether you're going to defend against the people paying dues. You decide if you're going to tell the people who pay you big dues that their safety is not worth your time. We're out of it. And you know what would happen? That would put so much pressure on the Players Association to do something. But that you know what that's an incredible thought. The only problem is I can't see the Board of Governors and you know and especially Gary Bettman um, wanting to lose and I use this word, you know, strongly, control. Yeah. Right? And yeah. I, I don't think they would want to surrender that kind of control and involvement that they would like to have for these kind of decisions. But you do raise a really interesting point, because to turn it on the players and say, look, you guys are, you know, again, I don't even know how else to say this, but you guys are killing each other, and if you can't control yourselves, uh We'll leave it up to you. Well, let, okay, so let's say you and I are both NHL players. You and I both pay money, for a, a percentage of our contract to that players' union. They are supposedly representing both of us equally. So right. in the middle of a game, I line you up from behind and drive you from behind into the boards and concuss you, and it's your third concussion, and you're basically Mark Savard. Your right. career is done. Right. How do you, how do you, do you turn to the players' association if they defend me and say, well, then why did I pay my dues to you? Right. Why are you defending the guy that ruined my career? I think it puts, yeah, the NHL won't want to let that go. They won't want to let the control go. But you want to know what will happen? I believe this. If the players' association were to hold that role and were to give a break or be soft, A, half the rest of the association would rise up, and B, the fans would go nuts because they say, look, you can't even look after your own guys. Yeah, that, that's, uh, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me, Scott. And unfortunately, I think in professional sports, sometimes a lot of sense is just a fantasy. And I just don't see that ever happening. I think the NHL are happy with the way things are going right now. Um, How can they be? How can they be? How can the NHL because, be happy because, with this? Because I think there are studies that they would show to prove that, one, fighting is down. Yes. Headshots are down, and injuries and concussions are down. I think that they have literature that can prove that. But and I, I think, think, and I think, when they look at it, because you'd have to look at it on a grand scheme, as opposed to each individual situation, and they would rely on those informations and that that kind of uh, data to to show to the public, in which they can say, "Look, we are doing a good job here." I do agree that fighting is down. I do agree that I think I would agree that headshots are down for the most part. Uh, the flip side, though, is you look at that situation with Winnipeg and Minnesota, and is is the NHL, if of all things, they are a money league. They want to make money, and if Minnesota goes out tomorrow night uh, because of a play that should never have happened, that should have been penalized far harder, that the officials, however the reason was they missed the call, uh, they lose money. The NHL, to me, you say, fine, you know what, Morrissey, who's the guy who hit him, uh, you're out for three games. Suddenly now the thing may be a little more competitive, and maybe you get another game or two out of this. And and I'm not saying they fix it. I'm saying you respond to the penalties appropriately. You know, and I will say this. One of the things I will give the National Hockey League credit for is that 
there was a time where the referee had total control. And in some of these fouls that we've talking about, we're talking about, and you can talk about the, you know, the stall hit, that was not a penalty on uh, during the play. I mean, I don't know how they missed it with you know, that many officials on the ice. But the NHL do go, go back and look at film and assess penalties and uh, fouls, suspensions, fines, et cetera, for that kind of, for, you know, for illegal hits. So I would say that the league is definitely doing a better job and really, uh, you know, backing up, backing up its rule book by, by punishing players, even though officials, you know, hits may be not seen or called by officials. So I think they're doing a better job there because there was a time where if it didn't, wasn't called by the official. It didn't it happen. Was, it, 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 nothing was happening. What league does well, though? And I mean, I don't know about Premier League soccer. I'm not talking about overseas. In North America, does the NBA suspend properly? Well, <laughs> that's funny because that's a league that don't. They look back. I think uh, you know our friend Ron Foxcroft. He was part of, uh, I believe, it still is part of an officiating thing with the crew with the NBA that grade every single call whether it be correct, non-correct, the situation, every single time the official referee blows, blows a whistle for a call, it is graded. And they have something called, I can't remember the name of it, Scott, to be quite honest, where you can actually, anyone can go back on the NBA.com webpage and look at the calls and see how they were graded. So I don't think they go back and look at, you know, and look at shots, but they do grade the officials very, very heavily. The NFL... After the Ray Rice situation, which uh, people may remember, it was when he was the guy who punched his wife in the elevator. Originally, he got, what, one game, was it, originally? And then they saw the video, and suddenly things changed. But the NFL has now gone the other way, where where they've become the hanging judge from what they were before. Uh, I don't know if that's the perfect answer either, to come down with a ton of bricks on everything. I, I don't know. But... Boy, I, the the thing about the NHL is it just seems like incident to incident, you can find similarities, and yet the penalty, it's like spinning a wheel, and you have no idea what's going to come up. Well, and again, with 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 new with a new um, you know a man running running the you know, Department of Player Safety, you uh, I mean you you just don't know. I mean, because this is something information we're probably never going to uh, find out or privy to. You know what internal changes have been made to, you know, to the way that the uh, the league wants things governed, right? These are things that we'll never ever know. Well, there's and one other thing I want to throw out this because, as I said, uh, and you and I were saying a few moments ago, the guys who have always been in charge of this department have always been people who have been involved in the game and usually in a tough guy role of some point. Brendan Shanahan did it for a while, and and others. You know, it's interesting because people seem to say in hockey that unless you've been in that role, you can't understand, therefore you can't judge. And yet, you know what? In our courts, we've never said, in order to be a judge, you must have been a cocaine dealer at one point so you can understand <laughs> the mind of a criminal. You you must have killed someone in order to sit on the bench so you Again, can understand. Scott, Scott, you're using common sense here. Again, and the world of pro sports, as you well know, does not rely on common sense. In so many ways, I know. But at some point, when it when when people are now, you're right. You may be right. The NHL may be thrilled with this. But when they look at the feedback, and over and over, people in league in cities all over the place are mad at this. Maybe at one point they say, you know, maybe we'll try something different, and we'll put someone in there to give a go who isn't a tough guy, who wouldn't even play in the NHL, and we'll see what happens and see if maybe it works better. That would that to me that would be an obvious thing. Riddle me this. Would you be interested in a system that would punish that would punish players based on the injury? No. No, the injury to me should have very little to do with the penalty. Because you can deliver an absolutely atrocious hit to somebody and they may not be seriously injured and you could then barely touch someone and they could get the the, the hit on uh, Myers for Winnipeg which was accidental. Right, he ends up missing time. I don't think that was a vigorous or a vicious or a mean hit at all, and yet he gets hurt. Uh, I no the the injury should look. I I would argue that at the end of the Bruins Leaf game last game, that you could make a case that the slash that Marshawn delivered on Morgan Riley should have been looked at by the league. A two hander. Now it hit him in the shins, so it's not a 
it's not a, a, a thing that's going to cause an injury, but you look and you go, man, that was a vicious swing of a bat. That was a baseball swing at another player. Right. They're not going to do it because if Morgan... Now, what would happen if Morgan Riley had collapsed to the ground, clutching his leg, and had to be helped off the ice if he was an actor? Might they have looked at that? Suddenly they would, and that's wrong. Anyway. I just don't know if there's a proper... You know, it's funny because it, it will be always debated. It really, really will be. I think each individual call... Uh, can be debated by many of the you know hockey insiders, experts, et cetera, et cetera, even right down to the to to the you know the part-time hockey fan that just looks at a hit and goes, "Oh my God!" You know, so I go back to my point. I want to see at least for one year as a test run. I want to see the players' association be in charge of this and see what would happen. I think that would be the one that would work because I you, think. Could you, could you do that at the top level? Would you have to maybe do that on a lower level? Maybe, of hockey? maybe to test it. But I, I think it's the one where you would have an equal playing field, an equal level for both the victim and the accused because they are both being represented by the same person and the players association. I don't think they could turn around and say, we're always going to defend now the person who is accused. I don't think they could do that in that case. You know, there was a time, there would be a time or not all that long ago where, you know, that, that idea of yours where I would have thought it rather radical, but you know, Maybe it's not as radical as I, you know, as maybe I used to think. Because uh, yeah, there are definitely times where, you know, I'm wondering, does this league make things up as they kind of go? Well, on? that's see, that's that's what I do believe. I think that the, there is no template or or whatever. They it is just made up as with whatever they feel. And half the time, the even the the explanation given is, well, yeah, but what about that one that was just an hour before in a different rink, and that seemed to be okay. Anyway, it drives me nuts. Uh, quick update, in case anyone's wondering, the Leafs and the Bruins, Leafs gave, gave up a goal about two seconds into the game, uh, but they've now tied it up. Thomas Placanic was at fault in the first one, and then he went and scored to tie it up. So, yeah, it looked like that, and too, in the end, I mean, that, and that injured the shocking news about Patrice Bergeron. And Patrice Bergeron out for tonight's game, so that is, game. Uh, that is big news, but um, we'll see. We'll, we'll see who does or doesn't get suspended tonight in this game for some <laughs> sort of dirty or not dirty hit. Bubba O'Neill, always appreciate it. You can watch him tonight on CHCH. He will be doing, well, I promised after last week I wouldn't mention the weather first. The sports and the weather. Tonight could, on CHC. There could be news. Who knows? There could be news. Who knows? <laughs> Bubba, thanks for doing this. Always a pleasure, but thank you. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.